Welcome back to the interview podcast on the Y Millbank Podcast Network. I'm Craig Weinberg sitting in the studio on Main Street, Millbank, South Dakota. On the show today, we have a special guest fresh off the House floor in Washington, D.C. South Dakota Congressman Dusty Johnson is here to tell us what just happened. The, the House just voted to pass, I believe, the largest stimulus bill, I believe, ever in the history of America. Congressman Dusty Johnson, uh, you are our lone voice in the House of Representatives. Uh, I just want to tell you how grateful I am that you, uh, on a day like today, uh, would take time to to come <laughs> to come talk to us. So thank you so much. Um, oh, give yeah. us j- just yeah. a brief rundown. What in the world is going on today? <laughs> yeah, well, and obviously it's not just a day that's been crazy, but I think you know everybody in America understands we're really facing twin threats. I mean, we've got the coronavirus, and that can wreak havoc on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've also got these. Uh, you know, this, these economic challenges, and that is touching almost every American. And I just think with from a congressional perspective, we knew we had to come together in a bipartisan way and try to get some help out there to people. That's what we did today. Uh, the House voted today by voice vote a couple days after the Senate voted 96 to zero. And, you know, listen, if you can get every United States senator from <laughs> Bernie Sanders to Ted Cruz. No kidding. To agree on something, that means something. Well, or, or they all got something they want. <laughs> at some level, but yeah, so yeah. that that's kind of a, a crazy number for something so staggering. I mean, this is not a little piece of legislation. It's no, huge. No, it's massive. Yeah, it's really massive. It's bigger than most people realize. You know, we throw around these big numbers all the time in D.C., so it kind of starts to seem like monopoly money. But this is <laughs> uh, this is a massive, you know, wartime like investment in the country. Um, I've, I've been talking, you know, as, as we, I talked with your people about coming on here, I've been trying to put together some thoughts, uh, some questions to really, you know, go after, um, try to get some answers being, you know, you're in the, you're in the fray. And so I want to get an idea. Um, one of the first things that I notice, I mean, I'm a, a personally, I'm a very small government conservative. And so, right. you know, I, are you surprised? Cause if, when we talked, I think we talked in 2018, um, or I was 18, I think so, when you were running uh, for the seat you're in now. Uh, and, you know, you're really focused on the the details. Like, you're a, a policy guy. Right, um, sure. How, <laughs> one of the things that you said at, in that interview was, uh, if it's not in the Constitution, it doesn't belong at the federal level. Um, do you feel that the federal government at this point has overstepped any of its bounds? Well, I think when you look at the size of this threat, <laughs> I mean, you know, it doesn't know state boundaries. And if you want to talk about something that's tied to interstate commerce, I mean, if you want to talk about something that's threatening, you know, the very fiber of the country, I mean, there there are lots of constitutional provisions that I think would would point to this being something that, you know, we just we can't count on states and communities to deal with just on their own. And I think we see that as this thing very quickly spread, you know, to every single state uh, in the country. And, you know, I mean, gosh. Some of them, like New York, are absolutely getting blown up, mm-hmm. and their resources, their ability to respond, has absolutely been outstripped. Right, right. Now, are we? Um, uh, is the number the the scary number? And you know, I have to say that because when you listen to the news media, oh my word, the sky's falling. Um, and then you listen to some of the the leaders, and they're they're saying, "Hold on, breathe for a second. Yes, there's an issue, but let's just be let's let's be serious for a minute." And let's not panic. Um, what are the odds that 
the reason it's skyrocketing is just because we're testing more people and that this disease is actually more prevalent than we even imagined it could be. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, certainly getting more tests out gives you more positives. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that. But, you know, I mean, you look at what what do we know from a data perspective? Because I agree with you, now is not the time to, you know, lose our head or overreact. So (laughs) let's use good data. I mean, let's let's listen to the best scientists in the world uh, and the best policymakers in the world. And what we know is is that, you know, how you measure the contagiousness of a disease is is something the epidemiologists call the R-naught. And, you know, the R-naught for the flu is 1.3. Uh, the R not for something like measles, which is legendarily contagious, is 15. And, uh, you know, admittedly, coronavirus is a lot closer to the flu than it is the measles. It's 2.6. So it's mm-hmm. uh, twice as contagious as the flu. And so in a typical year where you would get 50 million Americans get the flu, uh, keep in mind that we have herd immunity, baseline immunity to the flu, and we have a vaccine. So many fewer people get the flu than otherwise would. But let's forget about vaccine. Let's forget about you know, baseline immunity. Even if only twice as many Americans were to get coronavirus as the flu, you're dealing with 100 million Americans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, upwards of 5% of the people who get it uh, need uh, ICU beds. And you look at a community like Brookings, not that far away from Millbank. Right. Brookings has 17 ventilators. Their their medical trade area is probably 25,000 people. So mm-hmm. a third of the Brookings trade area got COVID-19. You're talking maybe 8,000. And if 5% of them needed a ventilator, you're talking about 400 ventilators for a town that only has 17. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is using... Those aren't using outlandish numbers. Those are using numbers on the low end of what we know from uh, the experience. Well, and so I think it is something we mm-hmm. got to take serious. Yeah, well, wasn't the, because uh, I was looking, I listened to, is it Dr. Uh, Dr. Burks? I think she's working with the president, um, kind of heading up the the task force on this. Um, yeah. She, she stated the other day that the media needs to slow down because the numbers they're touting are actually um, estimates based on the third round of this, which actually comes in a couple of years. And so is it possible that some of these uh, governments have taken that big number that really kind of looks at much longer term? um, And and it's a guess, it's a projection by a computer, but it looks long term and tried to make decisions right this second. I was kind of uh, impressed with Governor Walls from Minnesota, his uh, speech when he talked about uh, their uh, stay-at-home order that's going to go into effect tonight. This is Friday the uh, 27th of March. Um, it will go into effect tonight. And he, he basically said the the plan that we've put in place to flatten the curve, which is what I've heard for two weeks, um, isn't working. It's not going to work. The evidence shows it won't work. All they're doing with their shelter in place or stay-at-home order is they're just going to push the peak out a couple more weeks, so to so to allow for for some more preparation. Um, are, are we like did our state governments get bad info at first that was maybe long term that they should have realized wasn't right this second? I don't think that's true at all. I mean, I think you see you know across the country every public health official that I'm aware of and. Every epidemiologist I'm aware of continues to talk about how social distancing and and good hygiene uh, can flatten the curve. 
And that's not guesswork. We know that from, you know, you know, decades of flattening the curve. Now, I didn't see what Governor Walls said, but I mean, it's remarkable he shut down the state. I mean, that's remarkable. So, you know, I mean, it is uh, that's that's uh, most states haven't done that. But I think we have seen that states that that have I mean, we know that New York and California had about the same number of cases a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. and they were kind of tracking together. And California got out a little bit ahead of New York as far as what they were having people do. And it got a little bit away from New York. And as a result, they had to respond in more and more aggressive ways because the fire at that point was already burning. But um, we know that social distancing flattens the curve. Now, maybe not as quickly or as much as Governor Walls wants, but, you know, it it certainly works. I mean, it it would be hard for it not to. Well, and and I wonder if because what I got gathered from him was he said, you know, our our peak, the big the big worry in Minnesota um, was they in the event we hit that curve, um, there's not enough ICU beds was what he was saying. And so by pushing right. out that peak, which he said is going to come, because after this two-week period, he said this disease is not gone. It's still here. We're just going to re-encounter it again, and it's going to go back up. Um, he said, all we want to do is have more time to prepare so that we can be ready when it comes. So th- that feels different than what we've been told in South Dakota, even with our local city government. Um, it feels different than what I've heard from other governments uh, around, the, around the country. I've got family in Oregon, California. Um, they're running off the, the sky is falling number. And it was interesting to hear Governor Walls say different information to them. Well, I mean, clearly pushing it out is a good thing. And that's mm-hmm. part of flattening the curve. I mean, what he's saying is entirely consistent with what the experts are saying, which is you flatten the curve. You do also push it out a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the overall numbers go down. I would be really I mean, that may have been one part of Governor Walls's message, but I would be shocked if what he's saying is the overall number of people who can get sick in Minnesota is fixed. That's unchanging. The only thing we get to decide is when they all get sick, because there's just no evidence for that. I mean, I do think there's something to be said for pushing the curve out because we've got treatments on the way. We've got therapeutics that are coming. We do know that viruses uh, can uh, drift and, and mutate as they go. And this one, there's some evidence that this one is drifting downward a bit. That's mm-hmm. not going to make a big difference, but days matter, weeks matter. Right. And to the extent that we can try to build additional hospital capacity, you know, as he's mentioned during the intervening time, that can all be beneficial. Absolutely. But, you know, this thing is not written in concrete. I <laughs> no, mean, exactly we, not. You right. know, the, the number of people who are going to get sick is not fixed. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the power to control that or at least influence it. Right, right. Um, I, I was surprised that uh, on Thursday, yesterday, Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, uh, which they are the biggest hit state, I believe, in the country right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, are. they also half, have half of, half of all the cases are in New York. Right. And they've got more people than most people, uh, most places in the country as well. Uh, he said, this is a quote from him. Uh, what we did was we closed everything down. That was our public health strategy. Just closing everything, all businesses, old workers, young workers, old people, short people, tall people, every school closed everything. He said, I, if you rethought that or had to analyze that public health strategy, I don't know that you would say quarantine everyone. I don't even know that that was the best public health policy. Young people then quarantined with older people was probably not the best public health strategy because the younger people could have been exposing the older people to an infection. So, I mean, they tried radical and then he's going, whoa, that might not have been the best option. Um, Do you see kind of a middle ground that would be maybe more appropriate? 
Well, not very many states did what New York did. Yeah, this is I mean, true. Certainly South Dakota has. The big ones and, did, though. Uh, some of them did. California, I mean, for sure. New York, <laughs> Texas. Well, but te Texas is quite a little bit bigger than New York, and Texas didn't do what New York did. And, uh, you know, it's been – we've had kind of a spectrum of, of – uh, approaches. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it'd be hard to imagine anybody would say that any one state got it perfectly, but certainly South Dakota's response has been a little bit more like what I think you've described than what New York did. Oh yeah. I, I've actually been really, um, uh, uh, pleased with the governor's, um, approach. That is, here's some good guidelines you need to practice. Let the cities kind of decide on their own and we'll let businesses and the people make some good choices and here's what we think you should be doing but we're not going to mandate it at the point of a gun essentially um at the state level which i you know i appreciate the cities can then manage as needed just simply because each city is a little bit different and so i appreciate yeah, that approach yes and and i do think that approach has a lot going for it you know the downside to that is and these are things that you know governors and, and uh, well chiefs uh, chief executives in any level of government yeah. always have to kind of weigh I mean, now you've got part-time mayors who are True. trying yep. to be public health experts, sometimes in, in communities with, you know, two two employees. Mm -hmm. One guy who takes care of the streets and the parks and one gal who takes care of the, 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 the bookkeeping. That is, a, that is a tough environment for people to make decisions in. But I think, you know, the state has done a good job, I think, of trying to walk alongside those people and help them make good decisions. Uh, are you surprised at all, uh, kind of shifting just a little bit, at the the speed in which uh, governments, like local state governments in the United States, um, were able to pretty much lock down, at, at some level, the majority of the population without much civil unrest or pushback? Yeah, that was a real surprise to me. But for almost everything about how quickly this has moved has been a surprise to me. I think Italy was eye-opening for a lot of people. I mean, just seeing Italy get absolutely overwhelmed and have people literally just I mean, having to die in, mm -hmm. you know, in that country because they didn't have enough resources. Uh, that is not the kind of thing we have dealt with and living memory in this country. And I think it was a big eye opener. And I think that's part of why you see. And then I think the economic impact was so dramatic so quickly. I mean, it is amazing when you look at how many conservative voices there are in the Senate, how many liberal voices there are in the Senate. I mean, you have Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz both the same way as Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I mean, that, that really tells you something about the nature of what we're facing. Well, but was there a choice? You know, one thing I've noticed in this, um, and, you know, not, not that anyone is advocating for anyone to die of a disease. That's not it. But it almost feels like, especially if you dig around in the social medias at all, um, that you aren't allowed or else you will be bullied out of your mind. You will be shamed if you even question the thought that maybe the government should take over. If you question that, it almost feels like you're not allowed to anymore. Is that similar in Congress? Like, do you think that no one had the uh, the guts, shall we say, to really stand up and say, let's think? I mean, is this the best practice? Oh, that's pretty hard to believe. I mean, I think you look at people like Ted Cruz and there are others, you know, I mean, <laughs> they tend Lee, to stand up. You're right. <laughs> I mean, they, they just, I, you know. 
by the time you get to be a United States Senator, you're generally not a yes man mm-hmm. or a yes woman. And, and you, I think, if anything, you know, I think we not not South Dakota, of course, but, you know, the egos of some of these guys in the Senate. I mean, they think they're always right. I mean, they're not going <laughs> to let somebody on Twitter tell them that they, they're reading the tea leaves wrong. Right. And right. so I guess I just have too much respect for too many of these stalwart conservatives for the idea that they all of a sudden would have lost their religion because, you know, people on Twitter were upset because people on Twitter are always upset. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think members of Congress have access to unbelievably, you know, intensive detail. Yeah. And one of the great joys of this job is an opportunity to talk to the world's foremost experts on anything, right. anytime you need to. And I think the cumulative impact of talking to those experts uh, was persuasive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I want to get to the money of this bill here in a minute, just because it's just the scale of it. Um, yeah, but it's unbelievable. It's crazy. Do you, uh, and how much time do we have with you? I don't want to abuse your time at all. Oh, I mean, I could, I could do another 10 minutes. Okay. I don't know what you're thinking. But. Uh, well, uh, we'll see if we can get through it. <laughs> um, oh. okay. Uh, you know, one of the things with this, the social distancing, I, I'm thinking of the psychological effect of what that does, uh, to people. If you, from a, uh, an authoritative position of government, if you come in and tell people you need to socially isolate and social distance, I know the the head of Sanford's Health uh, yesterday on South Dakota Public uh, Broadcasting's Facebook page, their headlines, uh, they had a quote from him. I can't remember the guy's name. Um, and he said, we need to be doing the proper behavior. And he said the proper behavior is social isolation and social distancing. Um, what is the mental um, ramification of telling people you aren't allowed to get within six feet of, of your family your loved ones and your friends? Well, it's huge. I mean, of course it's got an impact and it's an impact. It, it will take us a while to fully understand, but we've been here before. I mean, you know, with the Spanish flu, with smallpox, with polio, there was an article in the newspaper a couple of days ago about how that polio came back up during the summer. Mm-hmm. And before there was a polio vaccine, it just, it, it transformed the lives of children. Uh, normally summer was a time to get together and particularly to go to the pool and apparently polio was very easily uh, transmitted via water and there were just i mean there weren't kids going to the pool and there weren't kids in kind of the close proximity you imagine them just sort of cowling around and running around together during the summer and so we don't you know i think the difference is that now we uh these public health experts are trying to tell us about behaviors that uh, we know work. Maybe mm-hmm. they don't work as well as we want them to, but we know that they work as opposed to with past epidemics where it has been fear that has caused people to shut themselves in. They didn't know that there were protocols and practices mm-hmm. they could utilize to try to maintain some degree of, you know, some semblance of, of normal life. Right. Aren't we being <laughs> terrorized at some level with, with that fear from the media at this moment? I mean, I just... In our town of Millbank, um, there is talk, and Ortonville, just across the, the, the border, 12 miles away, um, people are freaking out, absolutely scared to go outside. Um, it, shouldn't we have a little bit more um, maturity in the way some of this information is disseminated? I mean, shouldn't the mainstream media be held accountable at some level for uh, panicking the public? So what does that look like? How do you hold, you know, uh, and I don't know the coverage that the 
you know, Watertown PO, right. Or the, the Grant County record has, has had on this, but you know, how would you hold the Grant County record accountable? No, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I'm just wondering if there's something, um, and again, I'm in no way advocating for government fed information clearly, but to cause mass panic, I mean, really at, at, at some level that that's really what's happened. Um, is there anything that, um, that can be done to at least give the, the talking heads on the news television and in the written online, not bloggers, but you know, the people that are uh, actually a part of a, a bigger news organization to say, let's hold off and let's not panic them. Or is there really no, um, no guidance that can be given there? Well, I don't know. I feel like the data driven evidence-based guidance is being given. I mean, every day, and in every state and, you know, in cities of any real size. I mean, I think you've seen Mayor Tenhaken and Governor Nome and President Trump. And mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think any of them have engaged in, and frankly, you know, the members of Congress with whom I work most closely. I mean, there aren't any of them, you know, stoking the flames of panic. Oh, no, I no. They, I, I don't think the yeah. government officials have necessarily. Now, some have no, some no, but, on the but coast. You're but saying, is there anything government can do to sort of push back against that media narrative? And I guess I'm saying I, I think there's <laughs> Gosh, been a maybe. pretty, I think there's been a pretty right. robust effort. Yeah. I mean, you know, the yeah. alternative. I mean, there there are probably some who, you know, and the president's done some of this. You know, attacked the media. I've just never seen that work. Yeah. All right. Um, one more question before we kind of talk about the money real quick. Um, so let's go down the road a couple weeks past some of these, uh, you know, shelter-in-place, stay-at-home orders. Um, this thing isn't gone. We get back into it. We're out four weeks, maybe six weeks, and we're still seeing that uptick of cases. Um, do you see uh, Congress jumping back in for more bailouts at some level? Well, you know, and the bailout is a word that's been used. You know, I generally, uh, not to argue semantics, but I generally <laughs> associate bailouts when you help somebody out of a problem that they caused. Right. Correct. Somebody gets in a bad spot. They get something to think about bailout. What it really means. Somebody gets thrown in jail. Right. Right. And you're going to bail them out. Gotcha. And I don't you know, I, I to answer your question, you know, I do think uh, I mean, nobody in Congress is but certainly not on, on my side of the aisle is comfortable with the price tag of this thing. I think the alternatives are worse. Mm. Right. Which is why this thing has been so broadly supported mm-hmm. across members of Congress. I mean, we. In the wake of the 2008-2009 recession, we tried to have our interventions be – they were a little too late in general, they were a little too timid, and they were a little too targeted. Hmm. And as a result, the financial crisis, which I don't want to act like there was nothing there, but I mean that was at least – that was like one part crisis of confidence, right? Right. There was overvaluation, but it was a lot of, of panic that was driving this. I mean we lost millions of jobs, and it took us 10 years to build back that labor force. Yeah. It was it was a recession that was as bad as as uh, worse than anything we've seen since the Great Depression by mm-hmm. the numbers, and I don't I mean we still don't have uh, food stamp numbers down to as low as they were before the recession. Once we just you know we we, we the economy took a nosedive, government was nervous uh, to react in in a very robust way because a lot of us like you and I have deeply held limited government principles, mm-hmm. and as a result it backfired. For 10 years, we put people on welfare. Right. And it's really, 
really, really hard to get them off. Absolutely. And you compare that to what happened in the wake of 9-11 where the recession was shorter and more shallow Mm -hmm. and we didn't have all that job separation. But once you get people on unemployment and food stamps, we just know that that those are sticky programs, particularly uh, SNAP and and uh, and TANF and some of these other programs. Do you think this is somewhat different because um, this is this is the the government's coming in and actually telling businesses they must cease operation? It it does like at that point we're really digging away at the foundation of the of the American economy, the Main Street of America. I know my business personally has been hit huge in the last two weeks just because of other go- other governor's uh, decisions because I work in other states doing different things and huge I mean astronomical numbers that I mean if, if there's nothing in sight it could cause us to have to rethink our business and that terrifies me because that was a direct result of an action that a government that I have no say in took well, I mean, that's the interconnected world. I yeah. mean, when we choose to do when we choose to do business in, in other localities, uh, you know, we know that, you know, we're not going to let Mexicans and Canadians vote in South Dakota elections just because they do commerce with us. No, totally. Um, and so, you know, but I would I would say, you know, clearly the economic hardship has been dramatic. Mm-hmm. It has also been widespread. I mean, you know, I was, oh, it's a blanket. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, even so, so for instance, there's no shutdown order for the airplanes but i was on a you know boeing seven you <laughs> was know, no one on there this morning that had four people oh on my word are you serious members of congress trying to go to i mean they were just they literally were four members of congress going for the votes today wow but for us that plane might have been empty i don't know oh, and so and you know i know business isn't mitchell there's no you know there's no government forced shutdown in mitchell or in south dakota mm-hmm. but I, my friends who run businesses and, and people like my wife who own, she owns a business as well i mean some of those business owners will are, are seeing even without that government order reductions in revenue absolutely as yep. bad as you are yeah and so i think you know uh, some governments could be handling this better but the real economic harm by and large is being caused by this by this infectious disease mm. Yeah, it's kind of an unknown. All right, let's uh, let's talk about the dollars real quick. Break that down. Two trillion with a T dollars. That's not even real money. I mean, we're talking big money. <laughs> Break that oh, yeah, down just a little bit. What does that look like? Yeah, you know, it's huge. I mean, it's it's massive. Um, you know, it's it's a an investment that's of a scope that would have been hard to imagine even just ten days ago. Mm-hmm. And I mean, again, it's amazing. I mean, I voted against the last two spending deals uh, because, you know, I think our government is not right sized given our revenues. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a trillion dollar annual deficits are, are no way to, to run a railroad, so to speak. Right. And there are lots of people, you know, on my side of the aisle that have voted against those budget deals, uh, both in the Senate and in the House. And, and you know, almost to a person, mm-hmm. they are they supported uh, many vociferously this package because although it is eye-watering in its size and scope, the alternative probably hurts the debt even more. I mean, you look at how much debt we took on during the Great Recession because uh, revenues plummeted, expenses went up as more people got on welfare. I mean, that dug us. I mean, it doubled our national debt. I mean, I, I'm and, assuming you, I mean, being the, the number numbers guy you are, um, do you know what that uh, in today's dollars was? What that in... Uh the debt was 
No, although, you know, I, I've heard it so often and I feel like I validated it enough uh, to, to think that it must be true, but the, yeah. the national debt doubled during Obama's uh, term. Yeah. And so, you know, that's not a perfect overlap, of course, uh, <laughs> right. with the Great Recession. But, yeah. um, you know, he, he was president for most of it. And mm-hmm. so a lot, I mean, when you when you double, you know, the, the nation's debt uh, during that time, I think you can see how much those job separations really cost us. Yeah. And so two trillion is huge. Um, it's huge. And I hope it I hope it does what we want it to do, which is keep people working. But. Um, you know, that that's better than, you know, the seven or eight or the nine or whatever the number was that the Great Recession cost us in debt. So how much of it uh, would you have liked to not be there? I mean, if you had your way, um, realistically, what would that bill look like? Well, on Friday, I talked to the president of the Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kashkari, mm-hmm. very conservative guy, brilliant monetary specialist, ran as a Republican for the governor of California, uh, right-hand guy for Hank uh, Paulson. Uh, this is a very well-respected you know, conservative thinker. And he, he talked about how trying to be penny-wise really makes you pound foolish, that this was an existential threat to the American economy, and that we got to decide whether this would be a short recession like 9-11 or a long recession like 2008 and 2009. And that, you know, the level of intervention on the front end would have a lot to do with whether this was a, a you know, a big problem or a massive problem. Mm-hmm. And the analogy he used, and I don't know that I, I subscribe to it entirely, but he said, when the firefighter is worried about how much water they're using, the fire is going to spread. Uh, right. Unless there is a finite amount of water at some level. Yeah, right. Which, so, so where does this, it, well, but there is, right. I mean, there is a finite amount of water. I mean, mm-hmm, and, sure. and you know, there's of course a lot more, the firefighters have a lot more access to water generally than, than, I mean, Congress oh, totally, thinks that right. they can spend and spend and spend, <laughs> but you know, if what you've got, and this is a bit of a false dichotomy, right? So shame on me, but I think you have a lot of, monetary and fiscal experts who view this as, you know, I can uh, deficit spend $2 trillion now, or I can deficit spend $8 trillion over the course of a four-year or five-year recession. Mm. And that's, again, that's a false choice. I mean, there's a thousand different scenarios that we could be dealing with here. But, I mean, it's, uh, I think the the, the cash to American families, Mm -hmm. uh, that, I mean, I think is is really going to help people get through these difficult next few weeks. Is there um, a thought behind um, not having that be uh, hinge on whether they are still employed or not? Like, what's the logic behind everyone gets paid whether they still work or whether they don't work? Is it just easier that way? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And also part you just I mean, then you got an appeals. I mean, it it. It ends up being a lot of government. Uh-huh. It ends up being a lot of government. <laughs> well, and, right. you know, and so, uh, and, and government's bad at lots of things. You know, uh, government is, is good, maybe too good at cutting checks, right? That's what, that's that what is, Andrew Yang thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, but that's very different, of right? Of course. I mean, you know, that's, I mean, Andrew Yang was really talking about making people, you know, permanently, you know, every four weeks being dependent on, on government to pay their bills. And we, and we have enough of that already, but we, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't seep into the lives of 350 million Americans. But, you know, to answer your question, I do think the unemployment benefits are too rich. 
I mean, I do think people lose their job mm-hmm. as a result of COVID-19. We, we have a societal, there's a role to play. I mean, it's an insurance product. I think we've got a role to play in making sure that we, that that insurance product is there. Yeah. But the, the way it was done, there are going to be lots of people in this country who make more money on unemployment than they made at their jobs. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody should ever get paid more for not working than they get paid for working. So it, do you think this is, uh, could be looked at by the, the Bernie Sanders of the world uh, as a, you know what? That was a good trial run. You see, we have this, and so they can point to this possibly as a uh, some sort of a, a win for that idea of uh, a UBI of sorts. No, I mean, I, I well, clearly, the, you know, the left is going to they're going to claim everything is is evidence for their worldview, right? <laughs> of course. I mean, I I would suggest to you that if we went into a three year recession, you would hear them even with louder voices, mm-hmm. you know, proclaim the weaknesses of capitalism. And if people were at absolute, you know, economic, you know, tragedy level, that message of socialism would, uh, unfortunately, in my mind, resonate with even more people. So I guess I view it as a constant that, you know, uh, people with strongly held worldviews will use whatever evidence they can to further their worldviews. But I would say is anybody who thinks, you know, Unemployment insurance is, and maybe that's not the right example because that is a monthly payment and it has been around for a long time. But I mean, a universal, you know, basic income as a forever mechanism yeah. is pretty different than the kinds of, uh, you know, emergency measures you call forth during a national tragedy. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you are running for re-election. Is, is this correct? Uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> Most days, I think it's uh, it's a it's a great honor to serve. I suppose I always think that, but some days are more challenging than others. I was sure. going to say, in light of this, um, <clears throat> uh, are you sure you want to go back? Yeah, I do. I mean, I I, uh, I, I the work is challenging. Uh, I know that I'm helping people. I do think that you know mine is a voice that we don't maybe hear enough of. I mean, yesterday the Club for Growth announced that I was one of a small number of lawmakers who'd won the Defenders of Economic Freedom Award. Uh, there are not many people who you know advocate for economic freedom. I shouldn't say that. There are. Uh, plenty of members that sometimes do, but I think it may be a little bit larger part of my worldview than, than it is for some. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't call names. Uh, I don't scream. I think uh, this is, you know, you solve more problems by using facts and data and trying to find common ground than you do by demonizing other people. And I don't, there are not too many people like me in Washington. So I don't want to make it sound like it's an obligation, but I would tell you that it's an honor to serve. And a lot of days I feel like, uh, we need people like that there. Yeah. Uh, real quick, what was your uh, biggest surprise getting to Washington? Oh, probably that, you know, the power just doesn't flow the way anybody thinks it does. I mean, people think, you know, leadership, you know, like, you know, the the, major, the minority leader, the leader mm-hmm. of the Republican caucus calls the shots or the lobbyists call the shots. I mean, I've just seen no evidence of that. Really? I've been around 15 months and I mean, I've never had Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, tell me how to vote. And I've never had Steve Scalise one time, mm-hmm. the, the minority whip, tell me how to vote. I've never had a lobbyist tell me how to vote. I've never had a lobbyist suggest that, you know, uh, you know, oh, if you did this for us, we'd be able to help you this way. I mean, if anything, all the power comes from the bottom up. I mean, it's, it's cable news and uh, the voters mm-hmm. and public opinion surveys. 
and polls that that to probably a, an unfortunate degree drive member opinions. I mean, there are a lot of members who, you know, if they think that their views on a topic are, you know, are not particularly popular at home, that will freak them out. And for some of them, not many, but some of them, it'll cause them to change their principles. Well, that to me is not how you define a principle. Right. <laughs> That's a whim. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, assu- right. assuming that we get through this, uh, shelter, this social distance, um, do you see uh, this disease scenario, this pandemic, uh, causing any issues in the November elections? Oh, I think it's got to have some impact. You know, so much of what people think about the president is already baked in or what mm-hmm. people think about their governor. Governor Cuomo is already baked in. People have really pretty, you know, rather strongly held opinions. But I mean, I do think, yeah, I mean, I think how particularly the chief executives handle this challenge will uh, at the local, state, and federal level, have a big impact for them. Probably less so Congress. So much of the congressional work has been shockingly bipartisan that it would be hard to imagine one party or the other at the congressional elections making a ton of hay about that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's there. Are, it's. I mean, the bill is. I think everybody would say is a manure sandwich. Uh, <laughs> it's just different parts of the the bill taste uh, better and worse to different people. <laughs> Interesting. Try that at home next time. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um but but that is the true but that is true by the way I would say for every bill. I mean there's just no perfect bill because you know we're flawed human beings and there are 435 different ways of looking at things and no one person gets everything they want in a bill. So, you know, you can either vote no on every single piece of legislation ever. Mhm. Or you can get comfortable with the idea that just like when families make decisions and nonprofits make decisions and, and churches and small businesses, that they those decisions will be filled with trade-offs. Yeah. Um, do you feel that, uh, since you've been in it for a year and a half, do you feel that um, Congress, and namely the House, uh, because that's where you're at, is it too polarized? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Sure it is. I mean, there are things that get done every single week. There are more like singles and doubles uh, that bills every week pass out of the House with a couple hundred Republican votes and a couple hundred Democrat votes. People don't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it is really uh, too polarized to get much in the way of home runs done. I mean, eliminating a $23 trillion debt, dealing with immigration reform you know, at large, dealing with health care reform. I mean, those aren't things that are realistically achievable in the current political environment. And that's too bad. Yeah. Uh, well, where, where can people find out about you and your campaign and uh, where you're at next? Yeah, sure. So on, you know, kind of the official side, well, and, you know, you got to keep everything so separated. And so we've got, <laughs> you know, a, a Dusty Johnson for Congress Facebook page. Okay. And, you know, then we've got a, 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 you know, Congressman Dusty Johnson Facebook page. And they're both good places to get information. That would be true on Twitter and Instagram as well. Obviously, different websites. In general, if you really are interested in government and policy, then the at rep Dusty Johnson handle on any of those sites is is the right one to follow. If you're more interested in the politics and what's going on with the campaign, then uh, the Dusty Johnson for Congress uh, or just DustyJohnson.com. Perfect. Well, I uh, am very grateful again for you uh, coming on. It's it's a great honor that you would take the time to speak to little old Milbank, um, but I really appreciate it. Uh, any last oh, words you want to? Oh, it's been wanna... super fun. 
and, and it's been cerebrally challenging. I mean, you know, these long form interviews, you know, tax thinking people, uh, both listeners and, uh, you know, participants in a way that, you know, the quick two minute hit never does. So this is wonderful. Right. And that's why I love it. So, uh, again, once we get past this pandemic um, and you're ever in Millbank, do come in. We'd love to have you in studio. Uh, we were going to try that in April, but that just isn't going to happen. So um, I really appreciate your time. Uh, any last thoughts? No. Hey, thank you for having me, Craig. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a great day. Thanks for uh, working for South Dakota. You bet. All right. That was uh, Congressman Dusty Johnson uh, live from D.C. He just got off the floor uh, voting for the, is it We Care? Let me go dig that up real fast. What did they call that? I think it's the We Care Act um, or U.S. Cares Act or something like that. <clears throat> uh, Two trillion, the Cares Act, C-A-R-E-S, Cares Act. Uh $2 trillion um, to help possibly stem the kind of stop the bleeding a little bit from this, um, the government caused, he even said it there, the government caused um, economy downturn, shall we call it? Uh, economy freefall, uh, economic destruction. I don't, I don't know, call it what you will. Um, but Congressman Johnson, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, check him out. Uh, at Dusty Johnson for Congress on the Facebook uh, and on the other options. he I believe his website is, oh, I was on it yesterday. Uh, we'll try to link to it in the show notes. This uh, this uh, interview will be available on the uh, Y Millbank podcast page on ymillbank.com. If you go there, go to the podcast button and then um, the interview. And you can go subscribe to the feed on uh, iTunes or the Google Play Store or listen live right there on, or listen recorded uh, on demand right there on the website. Uh, thanks a lot. If you have any questions, you can email us at, uh, at ymillbank at gmail.com. Uh, if you have a story to tell and you want to get your voice out there on this podcast, we welcome it. We would love to have you in studio. Uh, maybe not right this minute for the next couple weeks, uh, but we can certainly do it over the phone. Um, this was fun. This is our first time on Facebook. All you guys listening out or watching, I guess, watching on the Facebook. Uh, thank you. Um, this has been the interview podcast. Have a fantastic day, everyone. And we will see you next time. Thanks a lot.